turn with me to James chapter 5. If by the time we're done with James 5, 1 through 6, you are not ready to throw all your money away, I will have failed as a preacher. I say that somewhat joking. Let me say before we read it, just so, <clears throat> just so you might be a little bit more in tune with the nature of the passage and can read with a little, uh, being a little bit more informed as we go through here. One of the things that is unique about this passage is that it's, I think the indications in the passage suggest that when James is addressing the rich in 5.1, come now you rich, weep and howl, I, I think that James is referring to the rich who are not part of the people of God. That is, those who are unbelievers who are outside of the church. So we might say something like the wicked rich. Right? That's not in the New England sense. Oh, he's wicked rich. <laughs> right? Had to say that for my wife to clarify. Lifelong Mainer. But to say the wicked who are also rich. And in their riches, exercise further their wickedness. One of the reasons for that is because when you get to the end of this passage in verse 6, the statement is made that you have condemned and put to death the righteous man, and he does not resist you. So I think that this is a very unique passage in James where everywhere else in, in this letter, he has been addressing the people of God. Here, by way of sort of a literary device or technique, he's addressing those people who are not part of the people of God, which of course raises a very interesting question. Well, if he's addressing people who are not part of the church, who are not part of the people of God, why does he even bother? They're not going to be sitting around listening to the church read this letter. They're not going to hear it. And we'll, we'll come to that a little bit later. So listen now in, verses five, or in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, Weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. And the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabbath, or the Lord of Sabaoth, or in our English we might say something like the Lord of Hosts. You have lived luxuriously on the earth and led a life of wanton pleasure. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. You have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. This is the word of the Lord. Bow with me in prayer. Now, Father, we ask that you would help us to see that though this message, this word, is spoken ostensibly to those who are outside of the faith, to those who are lost in darkness and who are wicked, that this message still ought to be brought to bear on our hearts and minds so that it changes the way that we consider the things of this world and the riches of this life. Help us, Father, to find the riches of Christ to be far more enticing and satisfying 
than the cheap pleasures of this fleeting existence. In Jesus' name, amen. So you have here what seems to be a very thoroughgoing indictment of the rich. Let's say again that much like we wanted to give a clarifying statement about the rebuke to people who make plans, the, the previous paragraph. Come now, you who say, this is 4.13, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there and engage in business and make profit. Remember we said that the, that the issue fundamentally is not the fact that people would make future plans, it's not the fact that people would engage in business, it's not even the fact that people would make a profit in their business, but the fact that they are planning and living their lives as if God did not exist and as if God had no play or say in the way that they conducted themselves. Similarly here, we want to say that it's not being rich in and of itself that is considered to be condemning. There are, for example, we'll see a little bit later, there are passages in the New Testament where Paul, for example, towards the end of 1 Timothy, actually addresses rich Christians. It's very likely, and in, in, in fact, it's, it's not just likely, it's, it's logical and, and I think to be expected, that even during Jesus' earthly ministry, that Jesus benefited from followers who were wealthy, who had the opportunity to put him and his disciples up to give them a place to stay at night or to provide for their travel needs or something like that. So it's not, it's not riches, it's not money in and of itself. The scriptures, more often than not, tend to be far more concerned with three things when it comes to money. How you got your money, how you're using your money, and how your money is shaping your soul. In those three concerns, the rich that James is addressing here fail miserably those questions or those diagnostic questions. So we're going to try to break this down into two parts. One is the, is the explicit part. We're just going to look at what God says to the rich, his word to the rich, which is ultimately a word of guilt and judgment. But then we also want to consider that although God is giving a word of judgment to the rich for the way that they have abused their wealth, that there is also, even if it's implicit, there is a word here that's to be received by God's people. And so not only does God give a word of judgment to the wicked, to the rich, God gives a word to the righteous and the poor. And that word is one of comfort and caution. So come back with me to the text. Here, here's the obvious statement that God makes. We can break it down in two ways, verses 1 through 3 and verses 4 through 6. In verses 1 through 3, the description, the picture that you have is of someone who is rich in part because they have hoarded their wealth. And then in verses 4 through 6, what we're going to see, the hoarding has led to or has made possible harming the poor. So the rich are hoarding their wealth, and they're harming the poor. One of the things that will help you in the, in the first three verses here, when you consider why it's problematic that these rich people are hoarding their wealth, is because of the contrast to the life of the poor. Many of the poor during the first century, right, this is a poverty that by and large we don't really know in the U.S., but many of the poor in the first century, those who would have been day laborers, 
would have received their pay at the end of the day and then would have spent their pay that very same day in order to get food or supplies for their family. They spent money as soon as they got it, but they spent money as soon as they got it out of necessity. They had to survive on spending their money on a daily basis. And in addition to that, not only was, was their money going into their hand and then into the grocer's hand or the butcher's hand or some such thing, many of the poor would, have, would more likely than not have only had one garment or one set of clothes in contrast to the rich who are, have an abundance of clothes. So listen then, verses 1 through 3, knowing that that's the situation, the plight of the poor, that as soon as they get money, they have to spend it for their needs because they're always just one day away from going hungry. Knowing that they only have one set of clothes then, listen in verses 2 and 3, your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. The things that these rich and powerful people are amassing are temporary. They don't last. That's why they rust, and that's why they're eaten by moths. But the very fact that the, that the abundance of wealth that they have, whether it's in coins or money, precious metals, or in clothing, the temporal nature of it is proven by the fact that it will rust and decay or that it will have uh, holes from the moss or from insects eating away at it or something like that. But the, the other thing that adds on to this is not only are they hoarding things that are of no lasting value, but it also goes to show that in their hoarding, they're not using it for any good thing. It's just sitting in a closet. It's sitting in a storage room. They could use that money to help people who are in desperate need of money to feed their families, to clothe their families. These people have so much money, they're sitting on it, and it's decaying right up underneath them. They are storing up moth food in their clothing. Rather than feeding those who are in desperate need. And what the Lord goes on to say through James in this portion of the letter is simply this. Not only does the temporary nature of your wealth show itself in the fact that it decays, that it rots, that it rusts, that it's eaten away, the more rust and rot you have in your treasury, the more guilty you are of abusing your wealth. Do you hear that? When you look down at verse 3, your gold and your silver have rusted, and their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. 
How eager would someone be to cling to money if they knew that for every dollar that they did not use, they would suffer for it? Would that change the way that you considered your investing? Would it change the way that you viewed the allocation of your paycheck? Would it change the way that you viewed the Lottie Moon Christmas offering? These people think that the more money, the more clothing, the more wealth they get, the more secure they are. And the shocking revelation is, is that you are not more secure, you are less secure, and you are more liable to judgment in the end because of your excess of wealth. They're sitting on resources that could be put to good use They don't want to put it to good use because they want to use it for themselves. But they're not even using it for themselves, which is why it's rotting away. Small wonder, then, that not being very concerned about using their money to to help others, it's a very small step from not helping to actually harming or hurting people. It's not merely that they are hoarding their money, but one of the ways that they hoard and amass more and more money is apparently by cheating the people who truly need it. That's verse 4. The pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you, and their outcry has reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. Why are they not paying their workers the way that they ought to be paid? Is it because they have no money with which to pay them? No. They have more than enough money to pay them. But because by not paying them, I get to keep more for myself, and because society and culture allows me, as a rich, powerful individual, to wield that kind of authority, because I can, I do. There would have been, in the first century, there would have been no one to come to the rich man to say, unless you pay back wages, your your wages will be garnished or you will be incarcerated. The rich could do whatever they wanted to do. That's just the way that it was. There was no controlling legal authority to prevent them from doing this abuse of practice. Can we pause right here for a second and just make a, what should be a fairly obvious observation, which is to say that even today, simply because a society would permit something to happen doesn't mean that you are pardoned for doing the thing that they permit. 
for God's people, there ought to be a greater sensitivity to the way that we conduct ourselves in this world, in this life, to the way that we use our money and our resources than just simply, this is what the law allows. This is what the law does not allow. And all of this hoarding, all of this harming, all of this hurting of the poor is being said to take place, notice, in verse 3, in the last days. It's in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. And then down in verse 5, you have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. The worst sins and offenses of the rich to these people are being done at a time in which they have minutes, hours, days perhaps in light of eternity to settle accounts with the Lord, and all that they continue to do with the use of their money is increase their guilt and the certainty of judgment in the short, brief time that they have. In the Civil War, when the South split from the North, one of the things that the Confederate States did was to print their own money. Right? No shock, no surprise. Initially, the printing of Confederate money actually carried some weight or some value. But, as the war continued on, and as the Union gained more significant victories over the South, and as it appeared that the South was less and less likely to win their conflict, their war with the North, the value of Confederate money became less and less valuable. What many people consider to be the turning point of the Civil War was in July of 1863, where you have two things happening just in short distance from one another. You have the Union victory at Gettysburg in Pennsylvania, and then a few days later you have the fall of Vicksburg in the South. When word came out that Lee had been defeated at Gettysburg, the value of Confederate currency dropped just on report of that defeat, dropped 20%. By the time the war ended, Confederate money was not worth anything. The picture that James is giving here is of people who are hoarding worthless money because of their rebellious intentions in opposition to the king. If you could go back in history and tell people who were hoarding Confederate currency after the defeat at Gettysburg, what are you doing? Do you realize that in less than two years, all of this is going to mean nothing? You won't be able to buy anything with it. Why are you breaking your back trying to get more of it? If you're going to do anything with it, you better start spending it now and you better start spending it for the good of your neighbor. 
Right? Wouldn't you look back at people within that little small two-year window period of time and say, fools? Listen, people, there is coming a time when the king will return. And no amount of money that you accumulate in this life will mean anything when you stand before him. You will not stand before your creator and king and say, look at my 401k. Look at my three or four houses. Look at my half a dozen cars. Look at my vacations. Utterly worthless. And yet we live in a culture and a society that says, the more you can get of that, the more meaningful your life is and the more security you have. And God is here to say, the more of that that you accumulate and try to cling to, the worse off you will be in the day of judgment. When the Lord returns, there will be no suing for peace. It will be a full and unconditional surrender. And unless you have leveraged your money for the sake of the kingdom, much of what we do in the here and now with our money will be shown to be what it actually is, a waste of time. So consider then that as you go through your day, as you go through your week, that much of what the world is preaching to you, much of what the world is telling you in terms of the way that you should view money, the way that you should pursue it, the way that you should use it, right? You ought to think in line with the Scriptures. These are the voices, these are the thinkings, the reasonings of people who are in rebellion against my Lord and Savior. Why would I take financial advice from them? People, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that you shouldn't invest. I'm not saying that you shouldn't plan for things like retirement. I'm not saying that you can't go on vacations or anything. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is it is abundantly clear, not only in this passage, passage but throughout the Scriptures, that money is dangerous. You say, well, that's okay, because I don't really have any. That's a problem for all those people who do have it. Right? I wish my neighbor was here, just bought a new Tesla. He could use this message. Now, here's where there is an implicit word to God's people as well. Hold your place here. And go with me over to 1 Timothy, chapter 6. And look with me at verses 9 and 10. 1 Timothy 6, 9 and 10. 
Paul says to Timothy, but those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare and many foolish and harmful desires which plunge men into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all sorts of evil, and some by longing for it have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Who is it in verses 9 and 10 that falls into temptation? Is it the rich? No. It's those who want to be rich. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a snare. Verse 10. Some, by longing for it, have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Do you hear that? Money can kill you even if you don't have it, just because you want it so bad. Just the wanting of money, just the desire for it, just the longing for it, to adjust my schedule so that I can put more hours in at the office, to adjust our family routine so that Junior can hopefully get a full-ride scholarship, and become a multi-million dollar professional athlete. Just to want it can change the direction of your life. Just to long for money means that your heart is chasing after something other than Christ. And anything that is not rooted in Christ is ultimately corrupting you and killing you. It will deaden your soul. Have you ever thought about the fact that one of the reasons why you may not have more money is because God loves you so much. If I gave Merritt more money, he would be ruined. Therefore, because I love him, I will not give him more money. Have you ever thought about the fact that one day when we stand before the judge, when we stand before the king, and we see that all of the amassed wealth and collected and hoarded riches of this world becomes the basis on which God increases His judgment for those who were wicked and in rebellion against Him? Have you ever thought about the fact that when you see that you don't carry that guilt in with you, that you will praise the Lord for keeping you far from money and close to Christ? Of course, it's almost embarrassing to talk this way because of the fact that we are wealthy Americans. We don't know poverty like other people do. It would almost be shameful or embarrassing to talk like this with someone from a, from a non-industrialized country or from the third world. 
Paul says that for the Christian, contentment, the level of contentment should be if we have something to eat and if we have clothing. If we have food and clothing, we're content. Did you eat this morning? If you didn't eat this morning, will you eat sometime today? Are you entering into the sanctuary today with clothing? You're not walking here without. Anything you have above that is wealth. And if anything above that ultimately is wealth, what are you going to do with that wealth? I'm glad you asked. Paul says what you ought to do with that wealth. Still in 1 Timothy chapter 6. Skip down a little bit further to verses 17 through 19. Instruct those rich Americans, or sorry, instruct those who are rich in this present world not to be conceited or to fix their hope on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly supplies us with all things to enjoy. So just pause right there. Clearly Paul has in mind Christian brothers and sisters who would have been considered rich. He does not tell them divest yourself of all your income, take a vow of poverty, move out to the Mojave Desert and take on the life of a monk. He starts by saying, make sure if you are wealthy that that's not where your hope is, that that's not what you're fixed on. And then he goes on in verse 18, instruct them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, storing up for themselves the treasure of a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is life indeed. Do you hear the contrast there to James 5? The ones who have stored up their wealth in the last days and it's only going to lead to a more intense judgment Paul says, store up for the life that's to come. In context, what Paul seems to mean there is, if you have money, if you have disposable income, you know what you ought to do with it? You ought to spend it. What are you going to spend it on? Yourself? Or... Are you going to spend it in such a way that you are spending generously and sharing with those who have need? What if part of your enjoyment of the age to come, which, by the way, unlike this age, will never end? What if, what if your enjoyment of the age to come was connected in some way with what you did with your money? Would you use your money differently? See, it may be that one of the reasons that we as Christians don't use our money more faithfully is because we're not as thoroughly convinced that a resurrection is coming as what we claim to believe. 
the more thoroughly convinced that you and I are that this time is fleeting and this money is not going to amount to anything when Christ returns, the more free and generous and loose we will be with our money. Not unwise, not foolish, but the more generous, the more desirous we would be to use our money to make spiritual, eternal investments. And that's what James is ultimately encouraging us to do. When you look out at the world and you see people increasing their wealth exponentially, you ought not to praise them, you ought not to pursue them, you ought to pity them. You ought to pray for them. And then you ought to pray for yourself that God would guard your heart not to fall victim to the same lies and deceit that this world is preaching to you every minute of the day. Because we are already rich in Christ, there is very little that we need with the riches of this world. And we ought to live that way. Let's pray. Father, would you grow us in our love for Christ, in our desire and anticipation for an eternal kingdom to the degree or to the extent that the things that we otherwise would chase in this world would just come to look just more and more pitiful to us. Help us to see our time, our money, our resources, our energy all of those things that you've given us to steward, help us to see it in light of eternity. Help us to use the money that you have given us for eternal gain. Father, even if that means that we look like fools in the eyes of the world, let us find a greater joy in being honored by our Father. We thank you that in Christ Jesus we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. We thank you that you have promised and assured us that the lowly and the weak and yes, even the poor will one day rule and reign with Christ over this entire earth. May we live like that. May we anticipate that. May we use our money in light of that truth. In Jesus' name, amen.